You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you take that and go with me to Philemon? Might need to use your table of contents on that one. Philemon. Towards the back, close to Hebrews. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. You'll find Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or you can take one on your way out of worship today. If you take one now, use it to follow along with us this morning. We're looking this morning at Philemon verses 1 to 7, just one chapter in this book of the Bible. So we have only the verse numbers this morning, Philemon 1 to 7. By the way, I was backstage praying, but I I thought I heard, did Jose say shekels? Did Did I hear that? I love it. I'm going to invite you as usual, if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand because we really do believe this is God speaking to us, and so we stand to show our reverence and our readiness, our eagerness to hear from Him this morning. So listen carefully to these words in Philemon verses 1 to 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So for many weeks, a couple of months actually, we have been studying the letter to the Colossians in this series that we've entitled Preeminent. But I told you at the very beginning and when we gave out those journals, if you got one of the ESV scripture journals, I said this is going to be a study of Colossians and Philemon. Now perhaps you've been wondering this entire series, why have we grouped these letters in a single study? It's not an obvious answer because these letters are not grouped together in the Bible. They are in the journal that we gave you, but in the New Testament, they're not. And that's because the New Testament is divided like this. We have the Gospels and Acts, then we have Paul's epistles, and then we have what we call the general epistles. And Paul's epistles are assembled from longest to shortest. Philemon is the shortest of all of Paul's surviving letters. So it's tucked away in the back of the New Testament, sort of forgotten about, like that condiment in the back of your refrigerator that's been sitting there since George Bush was president. I'm not talking about George W. I'm not talking about George W. It's been there longer than that. We sort of forget that Philemon is back there. I would venture to say that many, perhaps most, Christians have never studied Philemon, never heard it taught or preached which is unfortunate because like I said a few weeks ago, though it is a small letter, it's muscular. Oh, it's muscular. N.T. Wright, who's one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world today, written over 70 books, his magnum opus is a two-volume work on the theology of Paul called Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Wright chose to begin his magnum opus with an exposition not of Romans, 
not of Galatians, Paul's better known letters, but of this letter that we're studying today, Philemon. This little bitty letter. Here's what Wright says in the introduction to his magnum opus. I want you to listen to this. He says, this letter, the shortest of all Paul's writings that we possess, gives us a clear, sharp little window onto a phenomenon that demands a historical explanation, which in turn, as we shall see, demands a theological explication. It's stretching the point only a little to suggest that if we had no other first century evidence for the movement that came to be called Christianity, this little letter ought to make us think something is going on here. Something is different. People don't say this sort of thing. That isn't how the world works. So what is happening here in this letter called Philemon? The letter centers around a conflict. A conflict. And to understand, to comprehend this conflict, we need to study the letter carefully and we need to think about the background, the cultural context. I'm going to need you to go with me today as we navigate the streets of the ancient world. It's not always going to be an easy journey, but if you'll hang with me, if you'll remain focused, I promise you, your attention will be rewarded. We're going to look at just two points this morning. This will be another one of those two-part messages. So we'll get the ball rolling today, but it won't come to rest until next Sunday. So you and your attention span will need to come back next Sunday, okay? Just two points today in keeping with the shortness of this letter. First, the situation behind the letter, what gave rise to it. And second, the request at the heart of the letter. So the situation behind the letter and the request at the heart of the letter. First, the situation behind it. Let's look again at verses one to three. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I said that this letter centers around a conflict, but who's involved in the conflict? The first person we meet is the mediator of the conflict, and that's Paul the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter. Most ancient letters begin by giving us the author and the recipient. If more than one person is listed in each of these columns, author and recipient, then the first person listed in each column is the primary. So in this case, Paul is the primary author of the letter. Timothy, more than likely, was with him at the time of writing. Philemon is the primary recipient. We'll get back to Philemon in just a moment. Paul, normally when he writes letters, he identifies himself as an apostle. That's his customary greeting, but not here. Here and only here in Philemon does he refer to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, this is not the only letter that Paul wrote from prison. He wrote a handful of letters from prison, in fact, but this is the only one that he begins with this self-description, prisoner. Why? Probably, Paul does this to bolster the argument that he makes in the body of the letter. He will go on to call Philemon to make certain sacrifices. And so here, he begins the letter by pointing out the sacrifices that he himself has made for the sake of the gospel. 
Martin Luther commenting on this verse says that Paul empties himself of his own priorities because he's going to call Philemon to do just the same. Paul is a prisoner for the sake of Christ. That's how he wants us to know him in this letter. And he writes to a man named Philemon. Now, who is this Philemon, and who are these other people who are mentioned alongside him here? Well, Apphia probably was Philemon's wife. Archippus is either their son or some other prominent person in the church that met in their home. Remember that in the early church, in the ancient world, first century world, they didn't have worship centers like this. They didn't have a faith center. There was no OCC packing party after church on Sundays for them. They didn't have a preschool or a courtyard. The early Christians gathered in homes. Philemon hosts one of those house churches, and it was a family affair. His wife was involved, their child, if that's in fact who this is. This conflict that we're going to read about was a household affair. This entire church is gathering in their home. Now, where did this house church meet? In what city did they reside? They met in the city of Colossae, the same city that we've been learning about as we've been studying the letter of Colossians. Now, how do we know that, you might ask? I don't see any evidence for that in verses 1 to 3. We just finished studying Colossians, and Philemon isn't mentioned in Colossians at all. So how do we know that he and his house church were in the city of Colossae? It's because of another man who is mentioned in Philemon, and he's also mentioned in Colossians. And that man's name is Onesimus. The conflict is between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus is mentioned in verse 10, and he's also mentioned in Colossians 4. In verse 10 of this letter, Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, next week, we'll look at verse 10, and we'll talk about what Paul means by that. For now, just note the name Onesimus. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. That is, one of you Colossians. So now we're beginning to see why we've grouped these letters together in a single study. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the entire Christian community in the city of Colossae. Philemon is a letter written by the Apostle Paul around the exact same time to a particular person, Philemon, in that same community. So we've established the connection now between Philemon and Colossians, but I still haven't told you that what the relationship is between Philemon and Onesimus. We know there was a conflict, but how are they related to each other? What are they fighting about? Philemon was the master, and Onesimus was one of his slaves. You remember back in Colossians 3, Paul spoke to the categories of masters and slaves? Well, now in the book of Philemon, in the letter of Philemon, he writes to a particular master about a particular slave. It seems that something like this had happened. Onesimus had run away, run away from Philemon's house, and in the process had stolen some money. 
Now, a runaway slave in the ancient world had only a few options. He would have needed to blend in, disappear as best he could, because if anyone encountered him and didn't report him within a period of 20 days, there would have been a serious penalty for that person. And if a runaway slave were captured, oh, he would have been in big trouble. Serious punishments up to the possibility of crucifixion. So there would have only been a few options for a runaway slave like Onesimus. He could have joined a band of ex-slaves. He could have hidden out in the underworld of another major city. But in this case, somehow, and this is where the story really begins to get interesting. In this case, somehow Onesimus finds Paul. We don't really know how. We don't know if he just, by happenstance, happened to meet Paul one day, or if after he ran away from Philemon's house, he began to have doubts. And he already knew who Paul was, and so he sought him out to get counsel. We don't really know. But one way or another, God's providence took Onesimus to Paul. And through that encounter, Paul shared the gospel with him. And Onesimus became a believer. He became a Christian. His life was changed. And so then, Paul sent Onesimus back to the city of Colossae, back to Philemon's household, carrying this letter, having done his best in the letter to make a case for why these two men need to be reconciled. This is a case. Paul will go on to say, Philemon, you need to welcome him back. The runaway slave, the thieving slave, you need to welcome him back. We'll get into why next week. But before we get into that, I think we need to spend just a few minutes here addressing a question, and that question is this. Why does Paul not address the institution of slavery? Because he doesn't, at least not in any explicit way. In this letter, he does not address the institution of slavery, and we need to insert maybe a little apologetic parenthesis here because a very common criticism of Christianity today goes something like this. Christianity is pro-slavery. Christianity is pro-slavery, especially those who are affiliated with the new atheism movement. They make this argument often. It goes something like this. The New Testament authors had their opportunity to speak against the institution of slavery and they didn't do it. They had their chance to go full-on Spartacus, full-on Maximus, down with the empire, down with the evil institution of slavery, and they didn't do it. And that means that the New Testament authors and all Christians are pro-slavery and who in their right mind would want to be associated with a group that's pro-slavery? Now, at first glance, that's, that's a pretty compelling argument, isn't it? It sounds pretty persuasive, so we need to be ready to respond to it. Thus, this parenthesis, this apologetic parenthesis. And in this parenthesis, I want to give you two words, two terms to think about. Difference and depth. Difference and depth. I'll unpack each of them. First, difference. When we study these parts of the New Testament that deal with the subject of slavery, we must be careful about taking our modern, our more modern understanding of slavery and imposing it onto the ancient text. Slavery in antiquity was different from slavery in the antebellum south. It was different in a number of ways. But the most important distinction to be made is that it was not race-based. 
In the ancient world, there were people who were forced into slavery as prisoners of war, for example, but there were others who voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. So there was both voluntary and involuntary slavery, but in neither case was it race-based. Slaves came from all different races. So it was quite a different thing than American slavery. That's the first thing we must understand. And the second word I gave you is depth. And by that I mean we must understand that slavery in Paul's day was an integral part of their world. Estimates vary, but at least one New Testament scholar has estimated that in cities like Colossae, roughly one-third of the population would have been slaves. One-third! So if we are the city of Colossae and we chop ourselves up into kind of this slice over here and this slice in the middle and this slice over here, all of you are slaves. Sorry you sat in the wrong place this morning. You got to mix it up. You got to move around. You're all slaves. That's simply the way it was. Slaves were everywhere. They were everywhere. And words like freedom and liberation which to us in our modern society, these are obvious goods in the ancient world, that was not the case. Because in their social and economic world, if a slave was liberated, if a slave was set free, that meant he was on his own. And he often had a very difficult time making a living. Liberation was more like unemployment. Here's an analogy that'll help you get the point maybe. It's a bit like, what about if a Christian in the first century, a person in the first century world who practiced polygamy, what if he then became a Christian? Now Christianity teaches that marriage is one man, one woman for life. But what if a polygamous man was converted in the first century to Christianity? Would he be expected to immediately cast out all of his wives but one knowing that to do so would be to condemn them to a life of poverty as social outcasts? You see the complexity of it. Slavery in the ancient world is similarly complex. Slavery was how they got things done. It was the electricity of the ancient world. Try to picture your home or our city without the ability to plug things in. And that'll give you an idea of just how difficult it would have been for them to imagine a world without slavery. When we understand all this, we begin to understand why Paul and the other New Testament writers address slavery the way they do. Paul does see the evil in slavery. He does address it, though his methods are subtler. Like Jesus, his way of changing the world is to plant a small grain of mustard seed, which at first seems like nothing, but in time, in time, there's a massive spreading tree. Paul addresses the issue of slavery from within. He calls for transformation from within, and that's what we'll see in this letter. He begins to plant that seed in verses four to seven. So there's a bit about the situation behind the letter. We now have a sense of what's happening here. The conflict is between a master and his runaway slave. How does Paul begin to plant the seed? Let's look at it. The request at the very heart of the letter in verses four to seven. Very similar to Colossians, Paul begins on the subject of prayer. And he talks about his own prayer. He first tells us that he gives thanks for Philemon. He then tells us why he gives thanks. 
And finally, he gives us a request. We see exactly what he's praying for Philemon. The thanksgiving comes in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers. Now, it's noteworthy, isn't it? I think it is. It's noteworthy that Paul, remember how he described himself a prisoner? He's in prison. It's noteworthy that he, a prisoner, begins by expressing gratitude. Paul, the prisoner, practices gratitude. In other words, he didn't allow the painful circumstances to warp him into a thankless person. Can you hear me? He didn't allow the painful circumstances to warp him into a thankless person. He practices gratitude. He says, I am thankful always, persistently. And of course, we can't be thankful in the abstract. He prays his gratitude. He thanks God. I'm thankful to you, God. I express that always as I'm remembering Philemon in my prayers. Paul is praying and he's giving thanks all the time, it seems. Let me pause for a minute here. Faith Church, I want you to know something. I'm thankful for you. I don't tell you that enough. I'm thankful for the way you love me and provide for me and my family. I'm thankful for the joy of serving as your pastor and living life alongside you. I pray for you regularly. I want you to know that. And I hope you pray for me and for each other. That's important. Prayer is one of the primary ways we love each other. When I pray for you, I am calling on the God of the universe to act on your behalf. And when you pray for me, you're doing the same thing. You remember back in Colossians 4 when Paul talked about praying steadfastly? persisting in prayer and the verb that he uses there means to busy ourselves with prayer let me give you a little piece of advice on that front one of the ways we can begin to busy ourselves with prayer is when the Lord brings a brother or sister in Christ to your mind pause and pray for him or her then and there don't wait to do it later because you'll probably forget we're simply too busy One of the ways we can begin to busy ourselves with prayer is in the midst of the busyness of life, pepper in these pauses for prayer as the Lord brings people to our minds. It's very similar, parents. It's very similar to the way you instruct your children in the faith. Every parent should have those intentional, focused times of Bible study and prayer. Maybe that's family devotions at the dinner table for you or before you put the kids to bed at night. We all need those. But there are also those countless teachable moments throughout the day. Those spontaneous opportunities as you're on the way to school, as you're working together in the yard. All of those teachable moments that we also want to take advantage of. Prayer is like that. Each one of us needs those intentional, focused times of prayer, but we should also pray spontaneously throughout the day. As the Lord brings a brother or sister to your mind, pray for him or her then and there. Prayer is one of the primary ways we love each other. So express your love for your brothers and sisters in prayer. Paul tells us that he's thankful for Philemon. He prays for him often. 
And then he tells us why he's thankful for him. Verse five, because I hear Philemon of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Philemon has a reputation. He is a man of deep faith that expresses itself in a wide love. By mentioning Philemon's faith and love, Paul paves the way for the request that comes in verse six, and this is the heart of the letter. This is indeed the heart of the letter, verse six. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is Paul's request for Philemon, it's a prayer request. He's telling us exactly what he's praying for. And though this is the heart of the letter, the meaning of it is not immediately clear, is it? See, when we use this expression today, the sharing of your faith, when we talk about the sharing of your faith, we're using that as a synonym for evangelism, right? To share your faith is to talk to an unbeliever about Jesus. Now, as important as that is, that's not what Paul has in mind here. And we know that because of the word he uses. It's a very important term. Paul uses it in six of his letters. It's the word koinonia. It's a noun, not a verb. It's often translated as partnership, sometimes as fellowship. Now, when you hear the word fellowship, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe you think of our first Sunday fellowship, full bellies and fun times. For me, growing up in the Baptist tradition, we had a fellowship hall. And often on Sunday afternoons after worship, we would have a potluck lunch. Everybody would bring their favorite dish. Baptists don't care about their cholesterol, so there were fried foods and baked goods everywhere. I remember that from my childhood. That's one of the first things that comes to mind when I hear the word fellowship. The other thing that comes to my mind, and this will be no surprise, is the fellowship of the ring. Of course, right? Tolkien's fellowship. Tolkien's fellowship is much more like the fellowship that Paul talks about here. What was Tolkien's fellowship? A group, a group of deeply different characters. A wizard, hobbit, elf, dwarf, deeply different characters that are brought together by and for a profound purpose. That's the biblical idea of fellowship. With the conflict between Philemon and Onesimus in mind, Paul prays this, Philemon, I'm praying that the fellowship of your faith may become effective, active, as it were. The only way, the only way for these two feuding men to be reconciled is for Philemon to activate, to experience the fellowship that his faith produces, the koinonia created by the gospel. Paul is teaching us that the gospel reconfigures all relationships. It reconfigures all relationships. It transcends the traditional divisions among the human race. This is the only way for these two men to be reconciled is to understand what koinonia means and to live into that. To see that to belong to Jesus is not only to belong to Jesus, it is to belong to each other in an intimate family unit, a fellowship. Now next week, 
in part two of this message. We'll learn more about how the gospel creates this koinonia. Today, I simply want you to see that it does so. And that means that the gospel is the answer for racism, sexism, classism. The gospel is the answer for violence, genocide, war. The gospel unites people like no other power in the world. Let me bring this point to life as we get ready to wrap up. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, who planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York in 1989, I believe it was, many years ago, he told a story about the early years in Manhattan when he and his wife Kathy had first moved to the big city to plant a church. And one of their sons needed some rollerblades for something he was involved in at school. So his wife Kathy goes to a store there in the middle of the city to try to find some rollerblades. She stumbles into a store that has skates and skateboards and an assortment of other things. And as she walks in, there behind the counter is a massive man. A massive man with a thick accent, long hair, tattoos everywhere, piercings everywhere, and of a race or culture that she couldn't quite discern. And there was Kathy, five feet tall, white as white can be, dressed in her Presbyterian pastor's wife's attire, about as straight-laced as a human being can possibly look. But she walks up to the counter, and she notices that this man is wearing a ring. And on that ring is a fish. And so Kathy says to him, you know, sometimes Christians wear that symbol to, to signify to other Christians that they're a Christian. And the man says, I am a Christian. And Kathy said, well, I am too. My husband and I just moved to the city to plant a church. And the man said, what church? And she said, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And he replies, well, I know that church. Some of my friends go there. And they carried on and on and on. And as they did, everyone else in the store just stared at them, just looked at these two people who on the surface appeared like they would never talk to each other. In fact, like they would want to stay as far apart from each other as they possibly could. And there they were, carrying on and on like a brother and sister reunited. And you know why they did that? Because they are. Because they are brother and sister. The gospel unites people like no other power in the world. It brings together people, no matter how different we might be, into an intimate family unit of fellowship. That's what Philemon is all about. More to come next week. Bring yourself and your attention span. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this letter. This conflict that happened so long ago between a master and a slave, it really is miraculous how such a thing can speak so clearly and so powerfully into our lives today. And yet it does. As we enter into this study of Philemon, God, help us to understand the power of the gospel how it does indeed bring people together, how reconciliation can take place because of all that Jesus has done. Jesus, we thank you this morning for the gift of your life, your death, your resurrection in our place for our sins. Give us a deeper understanding 
all that you have done for us. Our faith, it unites us to you, Lord Jesus, but it also unites us to each other. The body of Christ, the family of God, fellowship, a fellowship. Help each one of us to experience that in deeper ways today. In Jesus' name we pray.